And basically, I think its policy will be sort of like the old song from one of those American musicals. You know, anything you can do, I can do better. Welcome to the Grattan Podcast Channel. You're with me again from the Grattan Institute, and today we're discussing the history and future of Medicare. February 1, 2018, is the 34th anniversary of the beginning of Medicare. Whether it's being used as a political tool, a la the Medi-Scare campaign, or pulled out of your wallet at your most recent doctor's appointment, Medicare is as well-known an icon in Australia as Vegemite. But how much do you really know about it? Today I'm joined by Health Program Director Stephen Duckett and fellow Housewarison to discuss the history of Medicare, how it began, its political uses, and the challenges it continues to face. Welcome Stephen. Welcome Hal. Hi. Thanks, Megan. Stephen, in celebration of its 34th birthday, if you will, can you give us an idea of what happened the year Medicare was introduced? So Medicare started uh, in 1984, or should I say restarted in 1984. It was originally Medibank in the 70s, introduced by Gough Whitlam. But uh, over the period of the Fraser government, it uh, was slowly dismantled and a a significant commitment prior to the election of the Hawke government was the reintroduction or the, of Medicare. Uh, it was a component of the accord uh, between the union movement and the, uh, and the Labor Party and it was introduced by the Health Minister Neil Blewett in 1983-84, uh, formally coming into effect on the 1st of February 1984. So my understanding is the current agreement expires in 2020, yes? So Medicare has two components, a hospital component, a public hospital component, and an MBS component, Medicare Benefit Schedule, which pays for doctors. And the hospital component is implemented through agreements with the states, uh, so-called Commonwealth state agreements. Uh, they've, they've typically been three to five years long, and the current arrangement expires on the 1st of July, on the 30th of June, 2020. So I'm guessing something needs to happen before then. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, so 2018, is going to be the the year of the uh, of the new agreement, mm-hmm. partly because uh, it obviously takes a bit of time for these to come into effect. Partly because there's an election that has to be held no later than May 2019, and the government has a fairly major incentive to get an agreement signed up before before the the, the election. The election may be held later this year, uh, but. You know, so I, I can't predict precisely when it'll be, but somewhere between later this year and early next year, we're going to have an election and the government wants to put the Medicare issues to bed uh, before that election. Just on that issue, can you talk a little bit about the political history of Medicare? Yeah, so over the last uh, five years, uh, Medicare has uh, been at the forefront of some of the political con- con- debates. Uh, the current agra- agreement uh, or the the most recent uh, framework for the Commonwealth state arrangements for Medicare provided that uh, the Commonwealth share, the Commonwealth uh, responsibility was that it shared in the growth, the cost of growth of public hospital activity. And that was introduced just slightly before the 2013 election. Uh, and the Liberal government went into the 20, or the Liberal Party went into the 2013 election saying, we'll accept the uh, negotiated agreement, and not only will we accept the negotiated agreement, but we're the only ones who can deliver on that promise because we're the only ones who are economically rational. 
Well, what happened is in the first budget of the new Liberal government, the 2014 budget, they uh, threw that promise out the window, they ripped up the agreement and said we're going to go back to a flat indexation arrangement. Well, all hell broke loose. Uh, the states were up in arms, the Labor Party was up in arms, the public were up in arms, and uh, that agreement or that proposal of the 2014 budget was never implemented. As we know, Abbott was uh, Prime Minister Abbott was dumped by Malcolm Turnbull and the and the Liberal Party party room, and Malcolm Turnbull uh, then negotiated before the 2016 election a new agreement which essentially was very very similar not quite as generous as the Labor Party's uh, uh, agreement and basically what it provides is that the uh, government now meets 45% of the cost of growth in uh, public hospital activity and that's paid in a particular way but it's paid on what's called the efficient price and so the Commonwealth now uh, pays for 45% of growth. So this is what's up for agreement. This, this is the negotiation that's before us now. Um, what should happen after the 1st of July uh, 2020? Now, uh, as I said, I think it's uh, the, from the Liberal Party's perspective, from the government's perspective, they have to have an agreement. They do not want to go into an election not having signed up an agreement because if they do, the Labor Party will say, Look, we can't trust the Liberals with anything about health. They haven't even signed an agreement with the states. And so uh, you should vote for us because who knows what the, the uh, Liberal government will do. And as we saw at the 2016 election, uh, the Labor Party was easily able to run a Medicare campaign, uh, which hurt the, the Liberal Party uh, significantly. So I think, the, the trick for the government, from the government's perspective, is how does it negotiate an agreement uh, which costs the, the least amount of money? So the, the reality is uh, hospital costs are very, very expensive. The uh, you know, total public hospital spending in 2014-15 was, was almost $50 billion. Uh, the Commonwealth spent about uh, $16 billion of that on the on the healthcare agreement, so it's it's a lot of money we're talking about, and similarly, it's a lot of money from the states' perspective. The states spend about uh, 50 50 percent more on public hospitals than the Commonwealth do. Uh, you know, they, the Commonwealth spends uh, about the states spend about sixty about two thirds of the government spending on public hospitals, and the uh, the Commonwealth spends spends the other third. Now. Um, so we're, we're, we're really talking about uh, a lot of money here. And so the states are really keen to get as much as they can. Um, the Labor Party's uh, proposal offer was 50% of the cost of growth. As I said, the current arrangement is 45%. I think the, the uh, Commonwealth will stick with the 45%. They've been able to sign up the states at 45%. So why will they, why will they go for more? Um, the, in terms of other things that the, the states might do is to, uh, for example, look to uh, have bonus and penalty arrangements. So for example, it might want to introduce bonus arrangements or penalty arrangements if waiting times are too great or, or something like that. So this whole, this 2018 is going to be a significant year 
in terms of public hospital funding, in terms of negotiation of public hospital funding. And what will Labor's response be to that? Well, I think uh, the Labor Party is, is in a difficult situation. It too uh, wants to, or it wants to establish and demonstrate its credibility on hospital funding and, and on, as a protector of Medicare. So uh, during this time, I think it will sit at the sidelines and snipe from the sidelines uh, about uh, how hopeless the, the government is. And of course, it will want to outdo um, uh, the, the government on, on Medicare because that's, this is an area of its comparative advantage. Mm -hmm. And basically, I think its policy will be sort of like the old song from one of those American mu musicals. You know, anything you can do, I can do better. You know, <laughs> they can do anything better than, than Mal. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So I think uh, what we'll see is is Labor positioning itself as as being uh, the party of Medicare and uh, of trying to do better mm. than the Liberals. So, what do you see happening in the future for Medicare? So I think on the hospital side, it will be, will be more of the same. I think the public is expects. Uh, that they'll be able to get access to pu uh, public hospital care without uh, paying anything for it. And I think this is, this is uh, a well-established part of the policy landscape. It really is a question of how, how the, the arrangements work between the Commonwealth and the state. Mm. And you mentioned getting access to hospital funding without paying for it. What about out-of-pocket expenses? Are they likely to change? Yeah, well, I, I was probably a bit loose in my phrasing there. Of course, we all pay <laughs> for it through taxation. Um, and so what really meant was paying for it uh, without a, a, a payment at, 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 at point that of service. Mm. Out-of-pockets is a big issue, not mm. of course so much in the public hospital side of things because uh, people can get access without a payment out-of-pocket to public hospitals, but public out-of-pockets are really significant. They've been growing rapidly, growing out-of-pocket costs growing much, much faster than uh, the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. Um, we now spend uh, I think uh, almost 30 billion a year uh, out of pocket um, uh, grow, grows about a billion per annum. That's a, an extra dollar a week per person or something like that on uh, healthcare out of pockets increasing every year. Um, and so it's a significant issue in terms of contributing to cost of living pressures. Why is that? Why have they increased so much so quickly? Well, I think health costs generally increase faster than the consumer price index, and uh, we've had uh, a freeze on uh, uh, Medicare rebates for the last few years, mm. and so to some extent, some of that has been uh, been pushed onto the consumer through um, increased out of pockets uh, as a result of the freeze. We've had uh, uh, declining coverage or people dropping their health insurance coverage. And so they end up with higher co-payments or, or upfront payments they have to make. So that contributes. Um, obviously, some medicines are not covered by the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. And so people are paying over the counter for medications and so on. So all of that contributes to increased out-of-pockets. And I think that's also going to be an issue for the next uh, 12 months as, as both parties have to address that issue. Mm. And Hal, what are the challenges facing Medicare and GPs in today's climate? We've just sort of touched on out-of-pocket arrangements. That tends to be something that's more at the GP level. What, um, what are the other challenges? Um, well, I think 
uh, from a, a political perspective, one of the major challenges is that primary care and uh, Medicare are seen as um, uh, ways of reducing the hospital costs, which Stephen was talking about, so that if we have a stronger primary care system, we can see um, a reduced hospital cost by reducing what are called preventable hospital admissions from occurring by uh, essentially treating people in the community in primary care. So if you take an example like diabetes, people with diabetes end up in hospital because they end up with cardiovascular disease or peripheral neuropathy or ulcers. Those things can be prevented if diabetes is better managed in the community by GPs and um, community nurses and diabetes educators. So one of the great challenges that uh, I think the states and the Commonwealth see as being a, a possibility is that if you strengthen the primary care system then you reduce preventable hospital admissions. More broadly, the issue that's really there is that um, when Medicare was first uh, developed, uh, it was um, essentially around setting up uh, a system so that people could ac get access to um, basic medical care in the community um, so that they didn't have to have uh, either private health insurance or um, charitable um, arrangements in place. And there was a contest at the time uh, between whether we would set up uh, what was then called the Community Health Program, which were a set of uh, comprehensive services which would provide not just medical care but um, allied health, and nursing and uh, a range of other services to people in the community at universally free at a local level versus providing what was essentially a social insurance system, which was Medibank, um, which Bill Hayden introduced at the time. And the view uh, was that those two systems would compete for a while. The reality has been that Medibank and then Medicare became the dominant system. So we ended up with a social insurance system, largely for general practice and specialists. And if you include PBS, um, that, that system occurred. It was set up on a, essentially a reactive fee-for-service basis. So people would show up at a practitioner's door when they were sick and um, they would get access to um, low-cost um, medicine and uh, pharmaceuticals and that was a terrific um, innovation at a time when cost was a huge issue. What's occurred in the interim in the last 35 years or so has been, well actually if you go back to the original Bank in the last 45 years, um, has been that uh, we've seen an, a dramatic increase in um, uh, the requirement to provide care and and services in the community as we put pressure on the hospital system to reduce length of stay and to, to see more treatment occurring in the community. And we've seen a much greater emphasis on what's called chronic disease. Um, and chronic diseases are, by their very nature, they're long-term. They require not just medical care, but um, uh, support from allied health professionals. You need to self-manage that. You need to learn how to do those things. Uh, you need to monitor your own condition. You need to have ongoing care and support. So Medicare was really designed for a different time and a different place. It had a fee-for-service set of arrangements. It had relatively the emphasis was on uh, pharmacy and um, medicine, not so much on allied health and social support. Um, and so the result is that we now have a set of challenges for those chronic diseases, which are rapidly escalating. They're becoming um, the highest uh, cost burden in the system. Mm -hmm. Probably two-thirds of people will die from a chronic disease. Wow. Um, and that's larger cardiovascular disease, cancer, heart disease, and increasingly dementia. And those conditions are not well managed by just showing up when you're sick. You have to have a coordinated approach which focuses on prevention, which focuses on you getting to, to manage those conditions and to manage the risks so that 
Uh, for example, we've got a huge problem in Australia at the moment with rapidly increasing obesity, and we need um, a much stronger primary care system which focuses on getting people to manage their risk conditions as well, and to manage their illnesses when they're um, when they become ill, uh, when when they've got a chronic illness, to, to manage those chronic illnesses. So we need some reforms to to try and deal with those issues. And what reforms do you see that we need to address the issues? Well, I, th I think um, the way people would, the shorthand version of it is that people say what we need is integrated care. Um, and what that really means is that we need care which is more continuous over time, um, which is more planned so that um, uh, it's a partnership with um, the patient, with the consumer, with the person who's got um, either the risk conditions or the, the, actual, um, the actual illness. Um, that what we need if we're going to have those care pathways occur, then we need a more team-based approach to how we uh, provide care, which includes nursing and uh, medicine and pharmacy and allied health as the main stays of that, which focuses not just on procedural interventions when you're really ill or pharmaceutical interventions, but also on behavioural interventions so that you manage your symptoms better, um, that you manage the risks better, that you actually lose weight if you're overweight, or that you that you um, you avoid uh, the sorts of uh, factors which will cause exacerbations of the illness that you have, and so on. Um, in order to get that, we need different payment systems because at the moment we pay in ways which are fee for service, so that fragments care because really each practitioner gets paid for what they do when the person shows up. Whereas we probably need to package up the care so that there's more flexibility in how the money is used, mm. so that um, we have longer episodes of care being paid for around particular individuals and we need to focus more on the outcomes which we're achieving for those individuals so that um, good quality care is rewarded um, through um, payment systems which monitor what the outcomes are and then has at least some part of the payments um, based around incentives for achieving good quality outcomes. Uh, that would require us to not pay necessarily less to practitioners, but to pay them in a different way. Mm. Um, we also need much better data systems. At the moment, we, um, ha we spend uh, on general practice probably around uh, $7 billion a year. We know um, where services are provided, how many services are provided and what they cost, but we don't know anything about the types of services that are provided and the outcomes which are achieved um, because we don't monitor that. Mm. Um, and so we need a much better uh, approach to uh, monitoring the data so that we can pay in different ways and that we know what outcomes we're achieving for people. We probably need to have some um, reorganisation of the way we manage systems locally because we've got in any local area you'll have um, a number of pharmacies, a number of general practices, you'll have a number of specialist medical practitioners, you'll have community health services, you'll have mental health services, you'll have alcohol and drug services, you'll have women's health services, a whole range of services all trying to uh, deal with this um, set of problems which have identified particularly around chronic disease and what we need is much better coordination of those by somebody who's responsible for systems management at the local level and we're going to need to strengthen that capacity. So those are the sorts of things that we will need to do. The other thing that I'd say is that the digital revolution is here for health as much as anybody else. If we can coordinate our travel bookings and our hotels online and we can um, do shopping online and we can do a whole range of other things now through the digital revolution, uh, we're probably going to have to have a digital revolution to um, improve care coordination, care pathways, the management of teams, the, the uh, management of performance across 
this set of services which are out in the community. Mm. Um, so that's, uh, I think, the sorts of directions that people are going to, to be heading in. I'm just curious um, about the payment plans. What would that look like? Well, it would move from um, for a proportion of people who have more ongoing conditions, giving them the option of um, instead of being paid for each service that they get, that the that the practitioners, that the team which is providing services for them, is paid uh, for the whole uh, of their care over a period of time. So perhaps on a quarterly or annual basis there would be a, an agreed level of payment for someone who has diabetes and depending on the level of diabetes that they have. If they have uh, complicated diabetes, they'd get more money. Mm. If they have less complicated diabetes, they have less money. And um, that payment then allows uh, much more flexible use of the money. So more instead of um, it all being focused on perhaps a GP or a, pharma or a pharmacy, that money could be used to pay for more diabetes education, self-management programs, um, support by community nurses at home or whatever. Um, to help that person to have the best possible set of outcomes and quality of life mm. um, so that we don't put a straitjacket on how the payment system works. But that would mean a reform of the payment system so someone enrolls, gets a payment of perhaps um, 1000 or $1,500 for a period of time, so six months or a year, and then the coordinator, the general practice or the other whatever the other coordinating agency is, would then use that money flexibly to provide the care that's needed to that person rather than it's got to be uh, a level B consultation with a GP, yeah. pharmacy, etc. Right. So that's what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. What is the government doing about it now? Uh, well, the government is um, well aware of the issues and so a number of uh, steps have been taken. Um, there's been uh, a move towards um, introducing this as a function in the 2015 uh, agreements, the, no, the 2012 agreement, the National Health and Health, the, the National Health Reform Agreement uh, introduced the notion of primary care being strengthened. Mm. Um, that's more recently, with the change of government, been uh, moved from a very broad view of primary care to a much narrower view, which is on preventable hospitalisation. So there are now proposed set of bilateral um, uh, negotiations with the states. So with the Commonwealth is is um, is entering into negotiations with each state to see if it can strengthen its primary care system with the cooperation of the states to see preventable hospitalizations being avoided and so it's done that second thing that's that's happened is the commonwealth has introduced a set of changes to um, the way that uh, the coordination and governance of primary care at a regional level occurs and it's introduced 31 primary health networks, which are regional organisations to commission services and to uh, coordinate um, uh, the, um, the Medicare system, if you like, at the local level, and to work with uh, hospitals and other primary care providers and the states to try and address those issues that I've been outlining. So it's done that. And the final thing that it's, uh, it's also got a Medicare review on looking at um, uh, how payment systems might work. So that's happening. There's a review of what's called the um, uh, Practice Incentives Program, um, which is the performance-based arrangement that's due to finish and some new changes are being introduced next year to try and put a, a different and a stronger emphasis on performance by general practice. Um, 
and it's introduced some trials, which are called healthcare homes, mm-hmm. um, to try and change payment systems, to introduce team-based practice, uh, and to bring a more coordinated approach around individual general practices. Mm-hmm. Can you expand a little bit on what the healthcare homes are? Mm-hmm. Do you think they'll work? Well, healthcare homes are essentially a program where if you've got a chronic disease, and they're about 20% of the community which is seen as being relevant for this um, uh, this program in the end, and it's being trialled now, and these are people with complex chronic diseases who need multiple services. And they range from people who need GP plus allied health to people who are using GPs, allied health, maybe going in and out of hospital and getting home care. So there's a, there's a continuum um, of need that's there for this 20% from a small percentage who have very high needs to a larger percentage who have lower needs. Um, the uh, idea is that these people on a voluntary basis enrol in the program, um, the healthcare home program, and then they have a healthcare home and that healthcare home coordinates all of their healthcare needs. And so somebody is responsible then for making sure that uh, the arrangements are put in place so that uh, there's not fragmentation of their care. So that's the, that's the, the, the fundamental uh, objective of a healthcare home. But in order to achieve that, you have to change the payment system. So you create incentives for the, um, the, the healthcare home, the practice, to actually manage that care. So the money is pooled. So instead of it all being some money to the the GP and some money to the allied health practitioner and so on, it's pooled together and it's pooled over time. So instead of for individual visits, you get it as a block. And um, then you can tie that over time to um, outcomes as well. Hmm. And so you go from perhaps a $37.50 payment for a level B consultation every time someone with diabetes shows up at the practice to perhaps a $1,500 payment over a a period of time for... um, uh, you know the a comprehensive package of care over time. So um, that's the the essential elements of it. Um, and uh, and what it's really about is upskilling the healthcare home to provide team-based care. So that the idea is that the person will get a better set of outcomes because the care is coordinated. And do you think that will be the case? Uh, it's a challenge in the Australian system, and the reason it's a challenge is because. There are many elements of the healthcare system that GPs don't control. Um, So they don't control how hospitals will respond, they don't control really um, how other primary care practitioners will respond to what they're doing. Um, So they are a small component of a very, each individual general practice is a small component. General practice as a whole is a big component, but each practice is comparatively small. Um, General practices are basically still small scale. uh, businesses and they uh, they therefore have uh, only limited capacity to manage data, limited capacity to manage other people in the system, um, limited capacity to leverage this team-based care. Um, so probably what we're going to need to see is some systems-level trials. Um, you know, where you take a whole region and you say, well, let's try this with all the general practices and the hospitals and the and the allied health and the pharmacy and the extended care providers and let's see if we can come up with a a different set of arrangements which would still be heavily based around general practice but everybody's now working together to try and sort this out rather than uh, a poor old general practice having to try and leverage its position with you know much larger institutions around it and trying to get them to to change their whole service model Um, i think that's going to be the challenge for the healthcare home trial Mm. Um, but it's a step in the right direction so um, we'll see how how it goes 
the evidence suggests that there'll be limited impact um, from other trials like this and that we're probably going to need some bigger scale system regional trials to, to really make that, um, to see how we go with that. Um, and that probably will require us to renegotiate um, in the 2020 agreements, the bilaterals mm. um, with the states. Uh, so the states and the Commonwealth agree to try for some systems level trials on um, trying to deal with these issues. So the principles underpinning it are all right, mm. but the strategy for implementation is um, too small scale. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what's going to probably be needed in the next set of negotiations with the Commonwealth. Well, it sounds like 2018 is going to be a pretty interesting year in healthcare. Many thanks for your time today, Stephen and Hal, um, and happy birthday, Medicare. Uh, as always, stay up to date with all of Grattan's news, research and events by following us on Twitter at Grattan Inst or on Facebook Grattan Institute or head to our website grattan.edu.au. And of course, if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes to give it a rating or review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can.